You're listening to audio from Northway Church. For more information about Northway and additional resources, please visit northwaychurch.com. Thanks, Zach. Church family, good to see you here this week. I hope you're doing well. If uh, you're a guest among us, I haven't had the chance to meet yet. My name is Shay Sumlin. I'm one of the pastors here at Northway. And uh, I would love if you have a Bible with you to turn with me to Mark chapter 8 as we continue in a series we're calling Seven Marks of a Disciple. And again, been trying to say this every week, what we're after here in this series, probably the the heart of the Christian faith is understanding what it actually means, not to just be a Christian, but what it means to actually be a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ. And the lens by which we are examining that is through Jesus Christ's own words on the subject. We are looking at those places in the Gospels where Jesus himself comes out and explicitly says, if you do this, then you are a disciple of mine. And if you are unwilling, then you cannot be a disciple. And so that being said, we have covered three characteristics out of seven that we're looking at that Jesus spoke to so far. One of them uh, is the idea of loving Jesus, of to be a truly, fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ is to be one who is marked by a supreme and incomparable love for Jesus that rivals all other loves out of the love in which he has loved us. And so when you understand how much God has loved you through Jesus Christ, what should be one of the chief marks of a follower of his is one who supremely and incomparably loves him back. Um, So we looked at that. We also looked secondly at what it means to abide in his word as a characteristic, a mark of a disciple is one who is going to take the word of God, the actual um, governing, uh, the actual voice of Christ to be the governing voice over which, uh, over all other voices that may be speaking into our lives, that his word bears the most weight when it comes to uh, life and godliness and, and how Jesus Christ Uh, has wired us and saved us and redeemed us for. And so a true follower of Christ is one who sinks deeply into his word, becomes the chief voice that we want to submit our lives under his counsel. Uh, But then last week, we looked at the idea of denial of self. And really this mark is contained in a passage in Mark chapter eight with one verse that has the next three marks Uh, One is denying self, the idea that our life isn't to revolve around us. Um, Jesus's job is not to, uh, is not to orbit around our life and submit to our will, but, but actually we are to orbit around Jesus Christ and his will. And so before we can come follow Jesus, we've got to unfollow us first. We can't follow ourselves and Jesus at the same time. And, and so we looked at that aspect last week and, and what it looked like to lay down our will, to put that down. Well, whereas last week we looked at what it is to put something down, this week we're going to look at what it means to take something up. And we're going to look at the mark of uh, reconciling uh, through the cross of Jesus. This is in many ways the epicenter of all of these marks. It's the very center point of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And um, we're going to be in Mark chapter 8 to start here, and we'll pick up in verse 34. And remember, if you were here last week, Jesus is up in northern Israel at this time. He is just about to start setting his face towards Jerusalem. He pulls his disciples away for a retreat. He asks them, as you guys have been going out doing ministry, 
who do people say that I am? And, and they share varied responses. And then Jesus looks at them and says, but who do you say that I am? And you remember Peter steps up to the mic and Peter says, well, you're the Christ. You're the Messiah. You're the son of God. You're the one that we have been waiting for. The one whom the prophet spoke of, that the deliverer who would come and, and deliver us from our enemies. And Jesus says, you are right, Peter. Absolutely right on the spot, but you need to know something. In me being the Messiah, there is, a, there is a real purpose in why I've come. And it's not yet to bring about the fullness of my kingdom. It's not to overthrow your physical enemies of Rome. My primary purpose is to go to a cross where I'm going to lay my life down for you. Now, Peter didn't have a category for that at that point. He's reading his Old Testament. It just seems like the Messiah is going to come and set up shop right there and get rid of all physical enemies at once. And wait a minute, you're going to what? You're going to go to a cross? I don't remember that being part of the equation. Now, Peter had paid attention with a little of the Spirit's help from Isaiah 53 and other passages, would have seen that this was predicted, this was coming, but he couldn't see it. And he didn't like the fact that Jesus was going to go to the cross. And so he rebukes Jesus for that. And then Jesus turns around and rebukes him. He says, get behind me, Satan. Because you're setting your mind on the things of man and not on the things of God. You are putting your will higher than God's will. In fact, you're making God's will try to submit to your will and you cannot do that. And so he circles everybody up and he says these words in Mark 8.34. If anyone wants to come after me, he's got to be willing to deny himself, pick up his cross and follow me. And so we're going to look at that second aspect in there of picking up our cross, taking up our cross. To be a disciple, Jesus says, you must be willing to take up your cross. Now, what in the world does that mean? Now, I'm going to tell you right out of the gate what that doesn't mean. And uh, what we have done uh, somehow in our Western vernacular is we have taken this passage and we have hijacked it. And we've made it into our own phrase, the idea of taking up a cross, referring to some, some particular burden that we may go through in life or some unique lot that has been assigned to us, such as a physical illness, a, a chronic illness. And we'll use the phrase, well, that's just my cross to bear. Or maybe it's a bad breakup you've gone through and, and the shrapnel that's come. Well, that's just, that's just my cross to bear. That's the lot God has assigned for me. Or, or maybe it's a, a job loss or financial ruin, whatever it may be. Well, that's just my cross. Um, yeah, even my brother growing up uh, spun it the other ways. Like he'd look at me and my other brother and go, y'all are ugly. Uh, my cross that God has given me is to be good looking. This is just my cross to bear. My brother loved to say that all the time. Uh, that is not what's being said here. When Jesus says to take up your cross, he's not talking about a symbolic burden or some unique situation you're walking through. That may be true in other places. That is not true here. And so the question that we're wrestling with this week is what does it mean in the context of discipleship? In the context of following Jesus, what does it mean to actually take up your cross? Now, in order to understand this, we're going to have to look at this from a few different angles. One of the primary angles in which we look at this tends to be read in our 21st century looking back at the cross. If I were to ask you right now, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ and have been from some time, and I were to ask you, when you hear the word cross or Jesus's cross, 
What are some of the words or emotions that come to mind? Many in here may associate the cross with love. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son for me. And, and so when I think of the cross, I think of his, God's love for me. I, others may think of substitution or forgiveness of sins. Uh, the idea that God's wrath has been taken off me and put on Jesus and I've received his righteousness and all those things are true. And we're gonna look at those in just a moment. But here's what I want you to do when it comes to this passage. I want you to clear your mind for just a moment of all those connotations. And I want you to ask yourself, if you are a disciple standing in Caesarea Philippi in the first century, what is it that you would associate the cross with when Jesus says to take up your cross? Remember, all the things that we associate with haven't happened yet. Jesus hasn't gone to the cross yet. And in fact, Mark 8, 34, that's the first mention of the cross in the New Testament. This is the first time Jesus mentions the cross in the gospels is right here. So we have to do the hard work right now to go, okay, when Jesus is in this moment and he's saying this to them, what would somebody think of concerning the cross before love and forgiveness has ever been associated with it? See, for the disciples, this would have to be a horrific statement, a horrific um, thought for Jesus to say, if you want to follow me, then come forward. It's going to cost you your life. You're going to go to a cross just like I'm about to go to a cross. Like, by the way, when have you heard that invitation at a church? Hey, at the end of the service, if you'd like to receive Jesus, we're going to play some emotional music and I want you to come forth. We're going to pray a prayer and then we're going to take you outside and we're going to nail you to a cross. Who's in? Who's in right now? You don't hear that gospel invitation that much, but this is, is this what Jesus is saying to them? Because when you think about what's in the disciples' minds, it is Roman crucifixion, no doubt. Um, the idea of crucifixion, uh, from as best we can tell, began under the Assyrian Empire. It then got adopted by the Babylonian Empire after they knocked out the Assyrians. Um, uh, and, then, or, and then the Persians came in, I should say, and they took over from the Babylonians, picked up the practice. It was Alexander the Great who began instituting it across the, the Greek kingdom, but it was Rome who perfected it. It was Rome who made it a mandatory piece of their capital punishment. And under Roman rule, it was the worst way that a human could die. It wasn't just the pain of having your your wrists and your feet pierced with nails into a tree. It was suffocation that occurred when you were pierced that way because you could not get your lungs up enough to breathe. So you would have to literally press up on the nails already in your legs just to get air. And that's the reason why the Romans wouldn't let you go on long enough. Eventually, they'd just break your legs so that way you couldn't push up and you'd suffocate to death. It was a horrific way to die. It's where we get the term excruciating because to be crucified is at the epicenter of that word. And so it was a horrific death. It was reserved under Rome for the worst of criminals. Rome would not even crucify their own citizens unless it were a soldier who went AWOL, a slave, or as we see, saw in uh, first century quite often, even in this context of our scriptures, Jews and Christians. It was a way of Rome instituting and demonstrating their power over people. It was meant to be very public. 
very humiliating. So anytime somebody passed by and saw somebody be crucified, it was a statement. You mess with Rome, this is what happens to you. And uh, everything about crucifixion was awful. Even the events leading up to it were humiliating. Rome would make the, the criminal carry their crossbeam, the big heavy crossbeam that would go behind the arms. They would have to pick that up and carry it to their place of crucifixion. Uh, and it was a mockery to do so. And again, a way of demonstrating superiority. So you have to understand, up until this moment, in Caesarea Philippi, this is most assuredly the picture that the disciples had in their minds of the cross. It was identification with Rome. It was identification with a criminal's punishment, with torture, um, humiliation, and death. And then Jesus comes along and says, hey, by the way, I'm headed to Jerusalem and they're going to put me up as your Messiah on one of those Roman crosses. Oh, and by the way, if you wanna come after me, if you wanna be a follower of mine, you're gonna have to go to your death too. That would assuredly been a hard thing for the disciples to grasp. Now, the question is, again, we've talked about many angles here. Is this literally what Jesus meant? That a true disciple requires martyrdom. You follow Jesus, it's gonna cost you your life. Now, let's be clear for just a moment. Certainly, um, that is indeed a possibility. 10 out of 12 of the disciples standing there in that moment would experience a martyr's death. With the exception of John and Judas, the other 10 would die at the hands of somebody else because of their allegiance to Jesus. Even uh, church history says that even Peter himself was crucified, only he was crucified upside down because he did not consider himself worthy to be executed in the same manner as his Messiah. So certainly there is a reality to that. Even today, the Center for Global, uh, the Study for Global Christianity estimates that nearly 1 million Christians have been martyred in the last 10 years on our planet. That is the highest estimated rate in all of history. And we tend to look back at Nero and Domitian and these wicked persecuting emperors. They don't hold a candle to what is actually going on around the earth right now. That's around 90,000 Christians martyred every year. About one Christian every six minutes is executed because of their faith in Jesus Christ. So yeah, there is a very real, literal aspect that following Jesus may indeed cost you your physical life. But I wanna make this passage here a little bit more tricky for us, if I could here this evening. Do me a favor, flip to your right or scroll down wherever you're at to Luke chapter nine. Luke chapter nine, we're gonna pick it up in verse 23. Luke is recording the exact same conversation that Jesus is having with his disciples. And he records the exact same statement that Jesus said that day concerning what it means to follow him. The only difference is Luke records an extra word that is not recorded in Mark's gospel. I should you see if you see what it is? Verse 23, and he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Did you catch the extra word? Daily. 
take up your cross daily. Okay, now what, what in the world are we talking about here? This has got to really blow the disciples' mind. You want me to be crucified every single day? I'm following you. Is this literal? Are we talking about a literal physical death every day? Are we buying in to the doctrine of reincarnation somehow here? And you're just re-crucified every day? Is that what we're talking about? No, not only is that impossible, that's not biblical. Hebrews chapter nine, verse 27 tells us, it is appointed that every human being dies once. And then after that comes judgment. So no, there is not a re-dying every day physically here. So what in the world does this mean? Let, let me ask you a question here. What, what's the one thing that is missing from this equation in the disciples' minds? What's the one thing they are failing to understand about Jesus's death? It's the why. Why is Jesus going to the cross? Remember, Peter was having trouble with this, even reckoning the fact that the Messiah has to die, let alone why. And the truth is, until the disciples can understand why, um, they're not gonna get this. But once they understand why Jesus is going to the cross, then all of this is about to make sense that the idea of one picking up their cross daily is describing the kind of life that daily identifies and is reconciled through Christ's work on the cross on their behalf. Peter's eventually gonna get it. Acts chapter three, he's gonna preach his first sermon and he's gonna get it. Paul is gonna preach his first sermon in Acts 13 and he's gonna get it. They don't get it right now. But just like you and I, 2020, this side of the cross, they, they will understand. Jesus was going to the cross because the law demanded it. Genesis chapter three, um, actually prior to that, God says you can eat from any tree of the garden that you want to. Just don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. In other words, the consequence for rebelling against God's decree is death. And that was set in place. And, uh, and even later in Moses's day, God wanted his people to understand uh, what sin costs, which was death, and what is needed for forgiveness, which is substitutionary atonement. And so God instituted a sacrificial system under Moses in which whenever you sinned, you would take an animal to the altar and you, that animal would give its life. It would shed its blood for you so that you wouldn't have to die. But that was only a temporary system because just minutes later, you're sinning again. And the next day you got to bring another animal to the altar and so on and so on before you need to own an entire zoo um, in order to atone for your sins. It was always meant to be a shadow of the full and final sacrifice that the scriptures promised would one day come for them. And that day came when God himself sent his own lamb to the altar of our earth, which is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ came to take the penalty that our sin demanded, which was death. He died on that cross as a once and for all sacrifice to substitute himself 
where the wrath of God is taken off of us for our sin, it's placed on him. And those who trust in Jesus Christ receive the free gift of salvation. The righteousness that was Christ is transferred to us. It's the the beautiful picture of the good news that we call the gospel. This is surely what Jesus had in mind when he was carrying his cross, cross beam up to Golgotha to give his life away. He understood his mission wasn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life away as a ransom for many. This is why Jesus had come. And so what you begin to understand is that Christ was a once for all sacrifice through the cross, his life for us. And I want you to hear these scriptures here so you can really understand his life for us. His life for us, a once for all sacrifice. First Peter 3.18, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Him for us. Second Corinthians 5.21, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God, him for us. 2 Corinthians 8, 9, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that in your poverty we might become rich. It was him for us. Martin Luther called this the great exchange. His death for my life, my sin for his righteousness. When Christ picked up his crossbeam, carrying to Golgotha, that's what he had in mind, a once-for-all sacrifice. But now, in light of that, he says if we're going to be disciples of his, if we're going to come after him, then we too are going to have to pick up that same very death and we're going to have to apply it every day of our life through what Jesus has done. Simply put, if the cross was the place where Jesus died so that he could deal with our sin, reconcile us to himself and make us new, then the cross must become the place where every single day you and I apply what he did to our life. We are reconciled through his work every day. Now, let me give you a word that I think is going to help us understand what this death looks like. Uh, Paul mentions this in Romans chapter 6, verses 10 and 11. Listen to this. Paul says, For the death that Jesus died, he died to sin once and for all. We get that. And the life that he lives, he lives to God now through his resurrection. But listen to us. So you also must, and here's your word, consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. You must consider, that word consider, the old King James renders it reckon, good old Texan word right there. You gotta reckon yourself as dead. That word in the Greek literally means to count or to calculate or to credit. It's a mathematical term that elicits faith in what Jesus has done. It means you and I are gonna have to take this knowledge about the power that is available to us through Christ's work on the cross, and we're gonna have to do the math here. We're gonna have to add it up 
and by faith, live in light of it. Apply it to our life every single day. Um, the language that's in Romans 6, I'm going to take us back there for just a moment, at least in concept here. For those of you that were around for our Roman series through the last year, there's an imagery that I tried to draw out in Romans 6 that I think is helpful in understanding what this process looks like. It's the tale of two kingdoms. One that we called it was the life that you and I lived before Jesus Christ. Before we put our faith in Jesus Christ, we were residents of a place called sin country. And then there's another kingdom over here called Graceland, all right? These are the two, two kingdoms here, but we were residents of sin country. And there was a, a king who reigned over sin country. His name was King Sin. And King Sin, we were his loyal citizens. We lived our life in submission to him. He had edicts that we had to follow. Edicts that every day sought for us to live our life in gratification of our flesh and what would be pleasing to him and pleasing to ourselves. And we had to follow those edicts. But here's the, the sad reality. The consequence for following King Sin's edicts always led to death. Always led to death. And it was a horrible relationship, constantly enslaved to King Sin. But you heard of this land. You heard of this far off land called Graceland, where there was another king, except it wasn't Elvis. It was King Grace. And he ruled over this land. And the way he treated his citizens were altogether different. His citizens were lavished with his love. They weren't treated as slaves to sin. They were treated as sons and daughters, redeemed by his blood, gave his life for him, love, lavished his love on these people. And the edicts that King Grace issued always led to life, and not just life, but life everlasting. The fullness of joy was found in him. But here's the problem. No matter how hard you tried, you could never go over there on your own power. You were in submission to King Sin. He owned you. He owned me. Until one day, King Grace decided to do something about it. God in his mercy sent Jesus Christ. And this is where the cross comes in, right in the middle, where Christ came and took upon himself the penalty that the edicts of King Sin demanded, which was death. And he took that off of us and put it on him. And to any of us who believed in him, who trust in him, who transfer our trust from ourselves to him, he now adopts and reconciles and brings us over to Graceland where now we are no longer citizens of sin country. We are citizens of Graceland. And we've got our new birth certificate, which is the Holy Spirit, the, the seal and the down payment that says we are his and can never be lost again. And now we live under his edicts of grace, which are compelling us to live and to receive life everlasting. It's a beautiful, beautiful testimony of the power of the cross to liberate you from a slave to sin to a slave to righteousness, a son and daughter, from, from darkness to light, from death to life. 
It's the power of the cross. But here's the challenge, though. You and I, every single day that we wake up in Graceland, we get a phone call from King Sin who says, hey, you remember me? What are you doing? Why don't you come back over? Remember what a good time we had? Sweet, I miss you. Come on over. Enjoy the things we used to do together. And here's the deal. From time to time, you and I will go. But what the scriptures tell us is that if you've actually been bought by the blood of the son and you actually have been transferred to the new kingdom, you can never reside over here again. You're not a citizen anymore over here. Your citizenship is in a new place, never to be taken away, but you can come visit. And when you come visit, you taste of the old fruits and it brings about conviction and makes you want to run back to the grace that is always waiting for you. But the problem is many of us on this side, when we we wake up and we feel those temptations, we don't have the power sometimes on our own to resist King Sin's calls. And so one of the other powers that God has given you, if you're a follower of Christ, is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit who through in conjunction with the truths of God's word that we abide in, the Holy Spirit convicts and transforms and he changes our thoughts and our desires and even the power that is within the resurrected Christ that the Spirit has given us. When that phone call comes, you don't have to answer it. You can actually say, no, I'm not going there. And you know what we do every single day when that happens? We reconcile our lives through the cross. We say that old me is dead. I don't exist anymore. We say like Paul to the Philippians in Philippians 3, whatever was once counted as gain for me in this life with the old self, I consider loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ. Right here is where I wanna be. And so I'm not that person anymore. That person's been crucified and I've been resurrected with Christ. I've been indwelt with the Holy Spirit. I don't have to go back anymore. Greater is he who's in me than he who's in that world. Amen? Man, that's the truth of the gospel. This is what Jesus is bidding us to do. Come and die. If you want to follow me, you're going to have to say no to you and you're going to have to go through the cross. And now everything, the the script flips here. And once you understand all that Christ did once and for all for you, Now we understand the freedom of the cross and the the empowering of the spirit, what it looks like now to live a life for him, a crucified life. Listen to these scriptures. 2 Corinthians 4, 11. For we who live now are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. Us for him. Colossians 3.3, for you have died. You have died and your life now is hidden in Christ, in God. Us for him. 2 Corinthians 5.14 and 15, for the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, that's Jesus, therefore all have died, anyone who's in him. 
And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but live for him who for their sake died and was raised. Us for him. And maybe none stronger than Galatians 2.20. When Paul himself says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live. This guy's dead. But it's Christ who lives within me. The life that I now live over here, I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. This is what it looks like to live a crucified life. To every single day, take up your cross and follow Jesus. Jesus says, if you wanna come after me, if you wanna be my disciple, there is only one path and it is through my cross, which involves you receiving my one-time death for you and the forgiveness of your sins. And then every single day thereafter, as you have been born anew, you reckoning your life through my crucified reconciliation that I have given you every single day. If you are unwilling to receive my death for you in exchange for the rest of your life for me, then you cannot be my disciple. A Christian who has not reckoned their life through the cross is an oxymoron. And there is no power there. I shared the story, I think, um, I don't know, several Easter's ago. There was a, uh, a children's Bible my oldest daughter got uh, when she was born. This is many years ago. Went to a baby shower, a little Bible start flowing in. They gave her this, my first read and learn Bible. And all right, so one day I sat down, she gets a little older. I start reading to her and Adam and Eve and the story of Noah and Abraham and you keep going to David and then you get all the way to the end and it's Jesus sitting here with a bunch of kids And he told, I mean, the last page of the Bible is Jesus told the children to come to him. Jesus blessed the children. He'll always be our friend. And I thought, there's no cross in this Bible, let alone a resurrection. There's no cross. How do you not have a cross in a Bible? Those who remember this, I emailed the editor and the publisher. I was was mad, man. I was like, what? What are you doing leaving the cross out of a Bible? It's the epicenter of our faith. This is not a, shouldn't be called my first read and learn Bible. This should be called my first read and learn book of some moral guy who offers me no hope and has left me dead in my sins. That's what this should be called. And in the same way, Jesus says, there is no life in me apart from death. There is no following me apart from the cross. If you want to come after me, you're going to have to say no to you. And you're going to have to take that old self and that's got to be buried in the grave, crucified with Jesus, buried six feet under. And that old self never to come out of the, again. And instead walk in the newness of life that comes through the resurrection. This is what we mean, y'all, when we talk about living a cross-centered life or a, a very popular day, a gospel-centered life. Dane Ortland put it this way. Think about what we mean when we call people self-centered. We don't mean that all they think about directly is themselves. They think about lots of things, what to eat, what to wear, how to conclude an email, and a thousand other things each day. But self informs all these other decisions. A self-centered person passes all that he does and thinks through the filter of self. Self trumps everything else and orders all other loves accordingly. 
In a similar way, to be gospel-centered does not mean that social action, marital and sexual matters, ethical issues, political agendas, our jobs, our diet, and all the rest of daily life are irrelevant. No, rather, it means that all of life is viewed in light of the gospel. Everything passes through the filter of the gospel. What Jesus has done and is doing to restore the universe trumps everything else and orders all other loves accordingly. Likewise, the cross, when reconciled inwardly here, is now us daily viewing our following Christ as fueled not by what we can accomplish for God, but by what God has already accomplished for us. Goes back to last week. God is never gonna call you to put to death something in you that is greater in exchange for something lesser. God is always beckoning us to come to where true life is found in him, even if it costs us our life. Because our physical life means nothing if we're not in Jesus Christ. And the only way to be in Jesus is through his cross. Uh, I sent this out in a church email this week, um, but if you didn't get it, I would commend this to you. This is an article by Tim Keller, written probably 20 years ago now, uh, called The Centrality of the Gospel. All you have to do is Google Tim Keller, Centrality of the Gospel, first thing that'll pop up. Probably one of the best concise summaries I've ever read of how the cross, the work of Jesus, applies to every aspect of our lives so that we can understand what it means to live a crucified life for Jesus. Um, I would say in the meantime, maybe some questions that we can ask this week, y'all. Spend some time asking, what are the aspects of my old life in sin country that we know were crucified with Jesus and buried, but we keep trying to go back over there and dig it up and resuscitate it? What are those areas of your life that you just will not bury with Christ? and identify what those are, what it is that's preventing us from um, having those old things, such as our old thought patterns and attitudes and actions being put to death every single day so that the flesh cannot live. God has given us the whole, not only the power of the cross, power of the Holy Spirit. Romans 8, Paul said, by the Spirit is how you put to death the deeds of the flesh yielding ourselves not to our flesh, the old self, but yielding ourselves to the spirit who reigns within us, who leads us, guides us, and transforms us in accordance to God's word, yielding ourselves daily to him. I got to tell you, for me, this is an everyday struggle for Shea someone. An everyday struggle. There is some aspect of my old life that keeps popping up that I want to identify with. And I have to remind myself every single day that self is dead. That self was buried with Jesus and the new self was raised to walk in the newness of life. That is not who I am anymore. And I am gonna live my life following Jesus under the shadow of the cross and whatever comes my way is worth throwing off. There is no comfort of this earth that is worth keeping if it hinders me from following Jesus. It is all his. And what fuels me, and I'll leave with this, what fuels me to keep pressing on every single day and considering myself dead to sin and alive to Christ 
is when I think about these words from about Jesus in Hebrews 12, that tells us with the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising its shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Y'all, there is no greater joy than following Jesus. There is no greater joy than seeing your old self crucified, dead, and buried so that the new self can rise and throw off the trappings of this earth so we can unashamedly pursue Jesus Christ. Next week, we're gonna finish the last piece of that verse of what it means to follow him, what it means to live out of the power of that resurrection where we live a life that is marked by imitating Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the reminder here this day that there is power in the cross, that the old self, which sin once reigned, its edicts were death, that old self has been crucified. By the power of Jesus Christ, he is put to death both the penalty of sin, the power of sin, and yes, one day when he returns, the very presence of sin. In the meantime, Lord, as we struggle in this flesh, would you help us by your spirit's power to every single day put to death the deeds of the flesh of the old life, to see them dead and buried that we might live and raise anew to walk in the newness of life. And we pray this for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Northway Church. A podcast should never replace gathering with God's people to worship Jesus Christ. So we want to encourage you to be part of a local church family. We meet every Sunday at 9 a.m., 11.15 a.m., and 4 p.m. and would love for you to join us as we encounter the truth, beauty, and goodness of Jesus.